Hello and welcome to NLP Highlights, a podcast where we discuss recent research in natural language processing. The hosts are members of the Allen NLP team at the Allen Institute for AI. In each episode, we discuss one or more NLP research papers with researchers working in that space. My name is Walid Ammar and I'm a product manager at the Allen Institute for Artificial Intelligence, also known as AI2. I'm raising a 12-year-old who inspires me every day to use my skills, experience, and network to make the world a better place for her. I'm trying to do this by addressing the potential harms of AI in our society in its broadest definition, including people who tend to be marginalized and have less privileges. I enjoy wearing different hats every few years, including senior research scientist hat, a research manager hat, software engineer hat, and a teaching assistant hat. Before AI2, I worked for Google Research, Microsoft Research, and University of Washington, among other places. I earned my PhD in artificial intelligence at Carnegie Mellon University in 2016. I am Pradeep Dasigi, a research scientist on the Allen NLP team at AI2. I work primarily in natural language processing with the goal of building systems that serve human information needs. My recent work focuses on training robust and data-efficient NLP models that can generalize across domains, tasks, and languages. Today, our guest is Chris Kalsenberg, also widely known as CCB in the NLP community. Chris is an associate professor at the University of Pennsylvania. He is currently on sabbatical at AI2. These days, Chris focuses on applications of large language models to long-standing challenging problems in artificial intelligence. His PhD students showed that whenever they ask him anything now, his response is, have you tried GPT for that? That's the standard introduction for Chris, but I have a slightly more personal introduction. I've been admiring Chris and his work since 2007 when I was finishing up my undergrad at Alexandria University in Egypt. And I was inspired by some of the work that he did in machine translation and paraphrasing. I believe Chris was finishing up his PhD in Edinburgh at the time. When I eventually got to meet him early in my PhD, probably around 2011, I came to appreciate him as a highly empathetic human being, a rare commodity among highly accomplished researchers, sadly. And today I am super excited to talk to Chris about his recent testimony or hearing and I actually don't quite understand the difference between these two things, but he did a testimony and a hearing at the US Congress on artificial intelligence and intellectual property, which focus primarily on copyright law. We're going to be linking the video and the document that he wrote, like the testimony document that he wrote. Chris, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I've been a longtime listener, so I'm very excited to join you. Awesome. Uh, so I don't have a very concrete uh, you know, agenda, but I have a few curious questions about how, how this works, because I've never actually listened to a, a hearing before this one. And, uh, you know, like we have a quite international audience and uh, I wanted to help them get up to speed on like, what are we talking about? Uh, what is the U.S. Congress and like, why is it important? Yeah, absolutely. So the U.S. government is organized into three different branches. The Congress is the legislative branch, meaning they're the ones that draft the laws. So what they're doing when they hold hearings is, well, probably two different things. One is trying to do information and discovery to help them make a determination on what kind of laws that they should create. That was actually what the goal of this hearing was, and it was very collegial and very receptive. And they actually commented, they made a nice comment at the end, like that it was nice that there's there wasn't as much bickering as normal. Oftentimes hearings are also sort of for show, advertising a political position or uh, CEOs will get called before Congress and kind of like, it's sort of like being called into the principal's office where you get criticized for something. Oh, wow. Okay. That's intense. <laughs> uh, I'm glad it wasn't the case for you. Yeah, <laughs> Me too. <laughs> okay. So 
for this one in particular, like, why do you think this particular hearing matters? And like, who was selected to testify? Yeah, so that's a great question. So I think after the release of ChatGPT, like our field really had this breakthrough moment where suddenly lots of people from outside the field were interested and understood the potential implications of these things, or maybe didn't understand all the full implications, but wanted to learn more. And so this is one of several different hearings that were happening on Capitol Hill uh, in Washington, D.C., simultaneously. So the previous day, the Senate had a hearing where they invited the CEO of OpenAI and several other people to talk more broadly about risks of AI. And then this hearing was held in the U.S. House of Representatives in a judiciary committee, a subcommittee called that focuses on intellectual property and the internet. So what they're really potentially interested in are what, if any, legislation is necessary as it relates to intellectual property and large language models. So I think this is a super interesting topic. And I believe that the reason I got invited to testify at this House subcommittee meeting was because the month before I had participated in a panel that was organized by the U.S. Copyright Office, where the Copyright Office had been conducting a listening tour about generative AI and copyright. And that brought in all sorts of different diverse voices, many from many voices representing artists and authors and professional societies who have a 100% valid concern that their work is being used to train our AI systems, that there's a potential devaluation of the work that they do as a result of our systems getting better and better, and so on. So that's the other side of that I that I think all of us AI researchers need to be aware of and be concerned about because it's it's a valid perspective. That's a great introduction into like uh, what we're going to be talking about because I think a lot of us in AI land don't think too much about like the impact of our work on other parts of the society. Uh, as embarrassing as it sounds, I think that's you know my at least my impression uh, from talking to a lot of experts in our field, and it's kind of sad, but also. I think the Congress did a great job representing different factions of the society in this hearing. Uh, so I was very, I mean, I, I didn't know that these jobs existed, right? Like there's somebody who's like, who's an expert in copyright law, of course it exists. And somebody <laughs> who's like, the, I think the head of a union that like, maybe, was it a union? That was my impression. Yeah, that, that's right. So there, there were uh, four other people who were invited to testify at this subcommittee hearing. One was a copyright lawyer who is named Sai Damway, and he was actually the former head of the U.S. Copyright Office. So he like is now in private law, but like has a really great perspective on the legal implications of copyright and how it interrelates with technology. So he was a, a voice advocating for a position that I also advocated for about fair use. Um, and then there were three other participants. One was a Hollywood composer uh, named Ashley Irwin. Um, and so he was advocating for a really important thing that we should all consider that he had, uh, he called CCC. So what he wanted was consent, credit, and compensation for the people whose works we use to train our systems. There's also a musician named Dan Navarro who was talking about personal experiences and had this really great turn of phrase where he said, 
can a computer-generated song ever give you goosebumps? And he argued like, well, it can't because a computer could never have goosebumps and never kind of experience the emotions that it takes to compose a dramatic song. I disagree and I can talk why felt why later if you're interested. And then the final person participating was Jeff Sedlick. And he was he's a head of a or he's an expert on uh, image licensing. So if you think about companies that have large portfolios of stock photography, he kind of like was arguing for the position of license-based approaches to how we as AI researchers should access copyrighted data. Awesome. So you mentioned a bunch of stuff that I think are very worthwhile to like dig into the details of. But at the beginning, I want to make sure that everyone who's listening understands what are the risks to artists that we're talking about and like, what are we trying to solve really? Like, what is the problem? Yeah. So I, so I guess there's several different aspects to this. There's the copyright law and whether or not what we're doing with data that our systems are trained on should be governed directly by copyright law. So copyright law is something that really talks about the reproduction of work and how you can create derivative works from it. So it's a kind of intellectual property that gives the owner of the copyright the exclusive right to copy and distribute and to make adaptations of their copyrighted work. So that includes things like translations, redoing a novel into a movie, all these sorts of things, like those are governed by copyright. And so that is an issue, like does copyright give artists and writers the right to say, no, you may not use our work to train your AI system? Like that's really a fundamental question that is unclear at the moment. So there's a belief that it's probably, or the belief that our community holds is that what we're doing with these works constitutes fair use. So there's a carve out to copyright law called fair use that allows people to make copies of work under very certain circumstances. So like there's a four factor test that courts would apply to say, does this constitute fair use or not? So if you're making a work and it's derivative, meaning it's like, you're just translating it into another language and then reselling it, or if it's directly competing or reducing the potential income for the copyright holder, et cetera, then that would not be fair use. But you know, there's all sorts of copying that happens as a result of internet era technology that needs to be governed by fair use or else the whole internet would not work, right? Like whenever you load a web page, you don't have to get explicit permission from the author of the document shown on that web page in order to make that copy of the, that literally gets displayed on your browser. And then there's lots of other legislation that's really interesting, which we could go into details about that, like kind of like are making up for the short-sightedness or not short-sightedness, but the fact that like when copyright law was established, it was impossible to anticipate all sorts of technologies. So you mentioned, you ex- explained at a high level what is fair use. And I, th- I think that's very valuable. I only learned about fair use like a few months ago. And it's very important because like we have, we don't think about, about it much when we're doing the technical work, but like the legal implications of the work we do like does like matter a lot. And there is something about like, how can we tell if a certain use is fair or not, is fair use or not? Could you elaborate on that? Yeah, absolutely. So there's this four-factor test that gets applied by courts when a copyright holder sues someone for copyright violation. And the test is, 
what's the purpose of the use of the copied the copy that's allegedly infringing? And this could have lots of things. So like, is it directly competing with the original work? Meaning like, you know, if I'm, if I copy a novel and I start making reproductions of that and selling those reproductions, like that's, I'm doing exactly the same purpose as what the original copyright holder is doing. So I'm definitely violating their copyright. And that's actually like the origin of copyright. It's like at the start of the printing press, popular books would instantly get copied typeset again and reproduced. And so like you had to establish that there is this thing called intellectual property that gives the original publisher and the original author the right to reproduce it and make a profit from their work. So that's it, the nature of the work. And so there's like certain exceptions for copyright that take into account like whether the whether the work that's allegedly infringing is for commercial purposes or non-commercial purposes. So for a lot of academics like me, we can copy things with more freely because we're doing it for non-commercial research purposes. It's also like the nature of the copyrighted work and what it's being used for. So I think this is another interesting point where if we're using, so what can be copyrighted is interesting. So you can't copyright an idea. You can only copyright an expression of an idea. Similarly, you can't copyright a fact or a set of facts. So a really interesting question is, is the type of learning that machine learning systems do close enough to like extraction of facts that it would constitute a fair use of that original work? So if a student goes to a library to write a report and they read a bunch of books and they formulate their own novel essay that, that, that subsequently gets published, they're not violating the original author's copyrights because what they're doing is synthesizing the information there extracting facts about some historic figure that they're writing the report about, and then re-representing those facts using their own expression, their own way of phrasing it. Another is like, if you are using the same expression, meaning you're copying passages from a book or an academic paper, or you're including a snippet of a song or a scene from a movie, then it's how much of the original did you use? If you're only using a small portion of it, and if you're using it to critique or comment on that or to parody the original, then that falls under fair use. If, if you, the more of the original work that you're reproducing, the more that you're potentially violating the original author's rights because your reproduction of the increasingly large piece of it means that the people who would otherwise purchase the original are less likely to go out and purchase it because they can just read it in your version. And then that brings us to the fourth point, which is the effect on the potential market or the value of the original copyrighted work. So if you're doing something that's totally unrelated to the original intent of the work, so if, if you're competing directly with the novelist by publishing a copy of their novel, at a book and releasing it at bookstores, like that's a total violation of this because you're in the same market, you're decreasing the value of the potential earnings of that author and so on. If you're doing something totally transformative, meaning you're changing it wholly and for a totally different purpose that wasn't anticipated by the original author, and uh, you're not competing against their ability to make money from the original work, then that's a potential fair use. And I think this is also an interesting case because like we may be to the point where we've suddenly created a new marketplace for licensing works, right? Like there was no previous marketplace for like stock photography being licensed by AI companies, but maybe now suddenly there is. Wonderful. Thank you for summarizing this for us. I'll 
try to quickly like review those because I, I want to make sure that people are like following along with us. These are four considerations that you mentioned that constitute what aspects do lawyers and courts think about when they're arguing whether a certain use of material is considered for use or not. And one exactly. That- so it would be like what a judge considers if the original copyright holder sued OpenAI, for instance. The judge they would take them to court. The judge would say, "Is OpenAI infringing on this novelist?" Or you know, like you could say this whole class of people. So it could be represented by the authors' guild. They might sue OpenAI, saying you've trained on a bunch of novels. We can tell because even though you don't mention it, like there are tests to see that our novels are in there, therefore we're going to sue you for copyright violation. So that would be like Authors Guild versus OpenAI. And there was a previous court case, Authors Guild versus Google, about Google Books. Got it. With respect to specifically um, ChatGPT or I guess LLMs more generally speaking, are you aware of court cases that are either concluded or in progress that kind of like try to determine if it was fair use uh, using the material that was used for training? Yeah, that's a great question. So the, the fair use for generative AI is currently being litigated. As far as I'm aware, there aren't any large language models that are being, uh, creators of large language models that are being sued, but there are several generative art programs, makers of generative art programs who are being sued. So there's like a case. There's several cases against uh, Midjourney and Stability AI that where artists are suing them for copyright violation. So there's one where a set of artists, including a cartoonist who's uh, named Sarah Anderson, are suing because they didn't seek permission to use the copyrighted works when they trained the generative art system. And they articulate a really good position, and I'm totally sympathetic with the artist's positions. And I think that this also goes back to your earlier question about what are the risks to artists. So uh, Sarah Anderson talks about her work. Well, she, she's sensitive to her work being co-opted because uh, she's a cartoonist, and previously, like like alt-right people have taken her work and transformed it into memes and like. She does not want her art representing that kind of a movement. And then for the artificial intelligence system, she articulated like, you can go and you can type in my name and then a subject matter, and it will generate something in her characteristic style. So it's a cartoon. It uses big word bubbles, black and white cartoonish figures. And it's very reminiscent of what she produces, but it isn't a direct copy. And so I'm really sympathetic to her point of view, but I don't actually think that it's a copyright violation, unless you believe that the training on her work is a copyright violation. So the production of something in the style of someone is explicitly not governed by copyright. So you cannot copyright style. There's a related issue. I'm getting really wonky now, so feel free to get get me off track. There's a related issue that's not governed by copyright law, nor by a federal law in the United States called the rate of publicity. So if you are a well-known individual, if you're a celebrity, if you're a sports star or whatever, I can't like advertise my business using your image without your permission. And that the notion of image here goes all sorts of likeness things. So I think the types of things that Midjourney is doing or the types of things like we saw with the like generative AI producing a song in the style of Drake and The Weeknd, I think that those likely potentially run afoul of this right of publicity thing. So Drake did not agree to have his voice imitated when someone fine-tuned a model on his voice. 
Sarah Anderson did not agree to allow for people to create works using her name. And so I think those are like totally potential things. But again, like this right of publicity is like a idiosyncratic state-by-state thing. So not all states in the United States have a law that covers this. And the suit that the artists uh, that are collectively bringing against Midjourney is not alleging a violation of that kind of law. They're alleging a violation of copyright. And I think they'll likely lose. Yeah. Uh, this discussion makes me think that there is one serious problem in trying to apply these laws to AI models, right? Uh, or generative AI models. Maybe I'm jumping ahead a little bit here, but uh, <laughs> I mean, in general, proving that a model was trained on a certain kind of data is pretty difficult, right? I mean, essentially proving it in a way that you can actually argue in, the, in a court of law would be really difficult, right? I mean, forget, forget about trying to do that by looking at the predictions of a model. Even if you had access to the training data, that would be that would be very difficult to do, right? Yeah, so, and I, I think that's a good point. And I think that's actually probably why OpenAI is now super cagey about saying exactly what they train on. I don't think it's like, okay. I think it's for covering their ass kind of legally. And yeah, so us academics were like, we demand, like we, for good science and very good reasons for that, like we want to know exactly what it was trained on so we can do reproduction studies. We can make sure that our test sets aren't in their training data, that sort of thing. So I think there's a countervailing force from a legal perspective on why OpenAI won't disclose that. There's also some really interesting tests that some people have uh, released on trying to figure out whether or not some items exist in in the data set. So there was a really cool test out of a bunch of folks at uh, UC Berkeley where they constructed a closed test, which we're probably all familiar with. This is from David Bamham's group at UC Berkeley. So the paper is called Speak Memory and Archaeology of Books Known to Chat GPT and GPT-4, where they basically took passages from novels and then blanked out a character's name. So it's a short passage. And then they just asked, like, fill in the blank for me. And like, almost certainly you would have had to have read that book during at training time in order to do pass this test. So like they basically reverse engineer what copyrighted novels ChatGPT is trained on. So I think it's possible to identify. And I, I think almost certainly like if it got to the courts, there would be a phase where called discovery, where the company would be compelled to say what they trained on and they would have to admit to it. Chris, uh, you know what I'm impressed with the most here is your knowledge about legal aspects now. You've become an expert. In all- <laughs> yeah, so I was um, I was actually, before I got invited to Congress, I was like talking with my team at AI2, the Aristo team, during like our weekly check-in. And I was like, you know, I'm really going down this copyright rabbit hole. <laughs> and then like two hours later, I got an email inviting me to testify before Congress. And I was like, whoa, I'm way further down this rabbit hole than I thought. <laughs> right. Okay. Careful what you wish for, I guess. Uh, can you help us understand why do we even care to include copyrighted material? Like, why don't we just like use public domain data? Yeah. Okay. So this is actually a super fascinating question, and it relates to the strength of copyright in the United States. So this is also like why the U.S. really needs a robust fair use exception. Um, basically, anything that you create, any expression that takes on a form that can be communicated. Like if you write anything down, it's copyrighted. There's no opting into copyright in US law. You don't have to register anything. Like the only reason you typically register a copyright is when you're about to sue someone, but you own the copyright regardless. So as an effect of this, like everything on the internet 
is copyrighted by someone. So everything that we web crawled is copyrighted. And so the U.S. Constitution like proposes that Congress enact a copyright law, not directly calling it that, but basically they propose like for the purposes of promoting science and the useful arts, Congress should enact a law to govern the intellectual property rights of the original creators for a limited time. Okay. And the original limitation on copyright duration was 15 years. Now it's effectively unlimited. It's like the lifetime of the author plus an additional 75 years. So it's like multiple hundreds of years. And if you wanted to train only on public domain data in the United States, that would mean Wikipedia, anything with the Creative Commons license, or anything that was like pre-1930. So basically, we would not have anything in our models, aside from Wikipedia, that spoke of anything as recent as the Great Depression, right? Like that is not included in our training sets if we limit ourselves to public domain data. So it really doesn't make sense. And I feel like this is a, a super tricky issue. And like, so also thinking about the interests of Congress and who they're representing, although I said there's no like Democrat position or Republican position, and there's not a schism between the ideologies of the parties, there is a little bit of a breakdown between technologists versus content creators. And the chairman of this committee, Representative Daryl Issa, loves musicians. Like he really has gone to bat for them many times. There's a act that he introduced called the Classics Act, which took music recordings from pre-1974 out of the public domain and recopyrighted them. So like all these kinds of songs that would just be now coming in, like classic rock era stuff is now recopyrighted and you can't reproduce, you can't copy it. You can't use it for public domain purposes. Interesting. Yeah. Wow. Well, yeah, I, I was fascinated by this hearing because I mean, maybe, well, I know from listening to it that it's not a usual hearing, but uh, like three things stand like come to my mind. Like one is uh, one of the Congress people uh, played a little song, right? Like that was generated by AI. And I think the introduction was like, okay, we've been sitting here for a while. It's like chill for a minute. And then like for less than a minute, he played this piece, I think by uh, like imitating we, Drake. The, weekend. the weekend. Yeah, Drake yep. the weekend. Yeah. Okay. So, um, and the other one was, uh, I think the head of the, the committee was uh, showing a painting that is produced by an artist. And mm-hmm. in that painting, it was really imitating photos that were taken for people some of them were dead some of them were not dead without their consent likely without their consent and nobody was really questioning like the validity or like the legality of this art piece and so there's a question of like why is this different from from what the eye is is producing at a i think at a you know conceptual level i'm sorry i'm gonna just say the third one that fascinated me is like using wikipedia as you know like solid fact that was lovely and I don't know if that's like common in Congress or, you know, other branches in, in the U.S. government, but I, I think that was fascinating because I think if we, yeah, I, yeah, wh- whatever. These are just like thoughts. I don't, you don't need to comment on this. We don't need to. Yeah, no. So, so I think it was really interesting. So the chairman, Daryl Issa, showed at the end of the hearing, like, here's a painting that he had created by an artist of like all these Republican presidents, past Republican presidents, and they're all sort of in a room together and they look really great. And then he mentioned, oh, and I've got another one of Democratic presidents, don't worry. But then he he was saying, you know, like, what's the nature of what this artist is doing and whether that 
it runs afoul of copyright. So the artist uses photographs of those presidents to then create this composite scene. And that is actually a question about like how, how transformative is the work, is the painting that the artist created versus the original photographs. So there's like a, another classic example of this. There's actually several examples exactly of this. So like one is Shepard Ferry is a artist who created a, the Obama Hope poster during the 2008 campaign. And he used a AP photographer's picture of Obama from a press event. And then just like colorized it, abstracted it, added some like radiating lines and the big word hope at the bottom. And the, that photographer sued him and won because it wasn't a f- sufficiently different than the original photograph. Or maybe they settled and it, it was a little bit weird. But that just also happened at the Supreme Court with a f- photograph that Andy Warhol, who's now long dead, had used to create a picture of Prince. Uh, like silkscreen of prints that's colorized in a kind of Marilyn Monroe style. And the original photographer who had licensed that picture to a magazine sued the estate of Andy Warhol because they had resold the rights to publish that paper to another magazine, right? Exactly competing with the original use of the original photographer and like clear, clear cut violation. So like, it's weird because there's all these like, case-by-case determinations of is something a violation of copyright or not. And it's like really up to the courts to like apply these four-factor tests about fair use to make that determination. And it's not clear unless it's litigated whether or not that's the case. So another super relevant case law for us is the Google was sued by the Authors Guild over the creation of Google Books. So there's like a decade-long court case of the Authors Guild, which represents a bunch of authors who sued Google for its book digitalization effort, which originally started out as only digitizing books in the public domain, but then took books from libraries and started digitizing copyrighted books and making small snippets available and then to be searchable and to potentially resell and Google offered to settle, like they offered like $100 million to settle with a contract on how they could continue to use these works and give the authors like a cut similar to like how the how the app stores work now. Uh, authors Guild refused, like they went through in another attempt at settlement over the course of a decade, this dragged through the courts. Eventually, Google won. The court said, this is fair use. It's transformative. It's not the original use of the books. Like. And the Authors Guild got nothing. And so that established like a precedent for fair use for kind of information retrieval purposes and things like that. And I sort of feel like that is likely to be a very closely examined court case whenever a generative AI is sued because it's essentially the same thing, right? Google did not seek permission, did not seek consent to digitize those books. That's what the authors complained about. Um, They didn't compensate them originally. They offered to, but subsequently. So that uh, CCC consent compensation credit, like, I guess they were crediting them and showing snippets. But uh, like that establishes that like, if your use is incredibly different, if you're not infringing on the marketplace of the original authors, you're doing something transformative rather than derivative, you might be okay. And I think what generative AI is doing is arguably far more transformative than what Google Books did, right? Like it's, it's learning, it's 
extracting facts, information, opinions, all these learning how to use language, learning how to represent objects and images, all these sorts of like totally unrelated to the original purpose of the copyrighted works and related to learning and fact extraction. Likely, that's a pretty strong argument given that uh, court precedent. Yeah, thanks for highlighting this uh, particular case. Go ahead. Sorry, uh, an, an important factor here might be how the generative AI model is being used, right? I mean, if it's, whether it's being used for commercial purposes or not. But yeah, how, how, do, how do you think that factors in here? Yeah, I, I, totally, totally. So I think there's two different aspects on where I think copyright is applies and where we may potentially run afoul of copyright law. Training time, and that's really what I was trying to argue to at the congressional hearing is like, please preserve the fair use of copyrighted works for training or pre-training AI systems. And I tried to explain in as clear a way for a non-technical audience what I thought was happening during pre-training and relate it to like similar to how humans learn. Like I wanted to make that that part as clear as possible. Like that was the, that was the one message I was trying to communicate. The other place, aside from training, is outputs of models. Those can definitely violate copyright, right? So I think so sometimes we do reproduce works that are more or less verbatim copies of what we trained on. I think we all as AI system developers think of that as a bug or as like in undesirable behavior because the model is overfit or other sorts of things. And we're likely to be able to introduce technical mitigations to reduce that. So like I tried this with my former PhD student, Daphne Ippolito, when we first got access to the private beta of OpenAI, we like stuck in the first sentence of Harry Potter and we got the first chapter as output. That's definitely a violation of copyright. Subsequently, like OpenAI has mitigated against that, so you can't do it. But then Daphne's had a bunch of follow-on work showing that because of the number of parameters in these large models, including like the text-to-image models, you can memorize items in your training set. And like there's a line of research by her, Daphne and her colleagues at Google and many other researchers on trying to do extraction attacks like where you can prompt the model in a certain way to reproduce one of the original training items. And I think that's important for lots of reasons, including like you don't want to be able to exfiltrate PII, personally identifiable information, and then for copyright reasons as well. But I think it's like the attack thing, right? Like you kind of have to work hard to attack the model to get it to output the original. There's others where it's like, are you producing something that's quite similar? So another current court case is Getty Images versus Midjourney, where they have like they're alleging that a bunch of Getty images are that were copyrighted and maybe even stronger than copyrighted had certain licensing terms that Midjourney or the company that created that training set, the non not for profit called Lion, had violated the terms of service or whatever. But like there's a example of a famous sports photograph from Getty Images with these two soccer players like tackling each other for the ball and their arms are outstretched in this very like recognizable way. And you can type in that the names of those two the soccer players and you can get a very similar image. So then the question is like, is that a violation of copyright or not? Because you're not exactly reproducing the original, but it's quite similar. So there's like something called the substantive similarity test that might it might run afoul of. So outputs can be can definitely generate uh, violate copyright. Awesome. For the record, I do think that you did a great job like trying to explain in simple terms to the Congress what what is the training 
what does training entail? And I know it's complicated, so I appreciate the effort and, you know, planning that you put into this. And I, I think it was fairly accurate. Thanks. Yeah, I was I was a little worried. <laughs> I felt a lot of pressure as the only technologist on the panel, like, please don't fuck this up for our whole field kind of a thing. So. It's a lot of pressure, for sure. Yeah. So thank you for taking the pressure off the rest of us. But yeah, there's two, two other things. We're nearing the end of our time in this meeting, so I wanted to... Um, make sure that we cover those two points. The first one is about U.S. law is only affecting <laughs> Americans <laughs> or like people who live in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's like a whole bunch of people <laughs> who are not in the U.S. What do we think about this? Like uh, say OpenAI didn't, wasn't headquartered in the U.S. Maybe it was headquartered in China or somewhere else. And it's still selling its products everywhere, including the U.S. Any thoughts on how all this conversation is, is relevant for people outside the U.S.? Is there other avenues for legal legalization that's international? 100%. So I think that that's like another thing that makes this a super interesting issue is like, this is not just U.S. law, it's international law and different jurisdictions have different levels of copyright protection and different standards for what can be copyrighted and what constitutes fair use. And I think like some places are proactively trying to regulate internet much better than the U.S. It's like, I I sort of feel like a larger issue about why Congress is so interested in AI is like they recognize that they failed to properly regulate social media. And so they're trying to avoid the mistake of letting it go too far and potentially have negative societal consequences that they don't, that they can't get a handle on. So think like Europe has got really progressive policies in terms of uh, data privacy that potentially like integrate with data that's been crawled from the web that we're training on. Germany has very has a law that allows explicitly allows non-commercial collection of internet data for like information extraction and data mining type applications. So that's like in the law. So that's part of the reason why this large collection of images that people train text-to-image systems on comes from this particular not-for-profit company called Lion, which is based in Germany. Like, they are legally allowed to do that under German law. And then the fact that they're redistributing this resource and it goes on to be used by commercial entities, some artists and authors accuse us, researchers, companies, building AI systems of data laundering. They're saying, like, you're passing this all through this not-for-profit, they're creating this data, then you're using it to violate our works, you know, to use our works without permission. And that's, you know, like, that's hard to defend against. And I know from our perspective, like, it feels like that's an unfair accusation, but it's there. Other countries, like, have even more... AI-friendly laws. So in Israel, there's a recent court proclamation that training machine learning systems is fair use, like a very strong law. So like, you know, if we were to try to do this as an international syndicate, you would collect your data in Germany, train your models in Israel, and then run them wherever, right? And that's how you would do data. (laughs) But then there's other like international concerns that are kind of at the level of statecraft and competition and things like that. So like if the U.S. passes a law that really like hampers the ability for U.S. companies to build AI systems, then that like potentially shifts the market to develop them in China or in in another country where they're more permissive about this sort of thing. 
So, you know, that's exactly the, the kind of consideration that lawmakers are likely taking into account. Like, what's the right balance between protection of artists and authors' rights as copyright holders versus, like, wanting to promote industry and AI within the United States? Do you think that uh, something like um, the UN would be, an entity like the UN would be the right entity? To yeah, so first? maybe, like, the WPO or, like, there's, like, places where there are international standards for copyright and intellectual property. So uh, the WIPO, the World Intellectual Property Organization, like that might be the place that would create this international treaty style thing if it were to come to that level. But I think, you know, like at the moment, it's also fast moving that it takes a while for lawmakers to react to things and to consider what the implications of legislation are. It's likely to take even longer to form an international perspective where all nations agree to it. Yeah, all nations. Yeah, it's very easy to get them to agree on anything. So the second one I really wanted to get your maybe five minutes of your you know thoughts on is broader question of like, how is AI or maybe like I hate this word, but generative AI is like the new buzzword. So how is generative AI is impacting people's ability to continue getting compensation for the work they're doing? So it's not just about artists, like, for example, Truck drivers, we know they're, you know, they're not, their current, the, cur the current demand for them is going down. And a lot of companies are building trucks that will drive themselves or like will require less effort from drivers. So it's a much broader question. And you pointed out in the past, this has, the technology advancements have mostly impacted blue collar jobs, which is American speak for lower wages factory work like manual labor factory work that's sort of what blue collar corresponds to in u.s vocabulary right. yeah so i think this is this is actually like i think the much more serious issue that congress might need to contend with right so i think like you said five years ago i was actually concerned that self-driving cars might felt at that time to be quite imminent and the number of driving jobs in the u.s is like a very large fraction of the total number of jobs in the U.S. Something like 10% are taxi drivers or Uber drivers or like delivery drivers or long haul truckers, those sorts of things. And you can imagine like the disruption if very quickly 10% of your population was suddenly unemployed. That's massive societal disruption. Um, it didn't come to pass in part because like self-driving cars turned out to be much harder than we thought or that was advertised. But I think we're, there's a low probability of this. I think it's low probability to be clear, but there's the potential that this kind of technology uh, will decrease the demand for labor or replace certain jobs. And the thing that I wanted to highlight to Congress was this is not the kind of sector that we were previously, that we had previously had experience with job displacement in. So the U.S. has a long history of losing factory jobs, either to automation explicitly, where you replace people who are assembling automobiles with robots, or just to lower cost areas of the world where you uh, outsource your work to a factory in another country with a lower standard of living or a low, lower payment than the U.S. Uh, economy requires. So that's what we've experienced. And that's kind of like our mental model of what uh, job displacement looks like. But I think suddenly, like these are such capable machines that they may displace the other side of that, which is 
in the U.S. called white-collar work. So professionals who are office workers who do intellectual work in front of their computers and think basically there's lots of jobs that are personal assistants who work on transferring things into spreadsheets or they're legal assistants who do research on behalf of lawyers. And all these sorts of jobs, I feel like, are potentially at risk of being replaced. My hope as a technology optimist and someone who works in this field is that what we're doing is building tools to enhance people's productivity and make things better for society and make people more productive and unlock the creative potential that's in all of us. But, you know, that might be a totally naive point of view. And it may be like in a capitalist society, when you make something more efficient, what you're doing is taking work away from someone who previously had it. Yeah, thanks for your sharing your thoughts on this. I, I, I'm not usually a cynical person, but I think uh, with respect to specifically like uh, to what extent do we expect experts in AI or otherwise think about the social impact of others? I think uh, like I'm not super optimistic that people will change their attitude from like, you know, it's a competitive game. We're trying to maximize our wins to it's a collaborative game. We're all trying to, you know, like live in peace and like share the wealth of, you know, like of this life that we have. And um, so I think that's a much bigger. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like as a field, we don't have a very good track record with this, right? Like we start out building tools for like sharing pictures of our pets and our babies. And then suddenly it morphs into something that spreads disinformation and allows elections to go the wrong way or out, like COVID outbreaks to propagate way more than they ought to. And then, you know, like there's the kind of like disruptive nature of startups that we brag about. Like disruption is fucking horrible. Like we don't want to disrupt society. We want to like, we don't want to enable new things, but we don't want to break things while we're doing it. So yeah, we don't have a great track record. This feels like a moment that's filled with uncertainty and it's hard to think of like exactly what any of us as individual researchers can do, but I think we should be aware of our potential impact on society and humbled by that. Right. On that note, I really appreciate and, uh, you know, uh, the time you spent and the opportunity to talk to you about this and share your knowledge and experience through this with, uh, you know, people who may not have had the chance to, to listen. And uh, really the additional thoughts that you shared on top of what was in the hearing to me was very, were very enlightening. So thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. That was our interview of Chris Callison Birch about the congressional hearing. We will now play a recording of Chris's opening statement at the hearing. Chairman Issa, Ranking Member Johnson, distinguished members of the subcommittee, thank you for the chance to testify on this important topic. My name is Chris Callison Birch. I'm a professor at the University of Pennsylvania, a visiting researcher at the Allen Institute for Artificial Intelligence, and the deputy chair of the board of advisors of the Johns Hopkins University Human Language Technology Center of Excellence. Generative AI had its breakthrough moment in November of last year with the release of OpenAI's ChatGPT. This brought my field of research into the public eye and generated a huge amount of enthusiasm. I had access to OpenAI's large language models about a year and a half before the public. Despite having worked in this field for over 20 years, I was shocked by its capabilities. My first encounter with it pitched me into a career existential crisis. The technology had seemingly solved many of the problems that I was researching. 
It could translate texts from Russian into English. It could write coherent summaries of long documents and then answer questions about them. I wondered whether there was any room left for academic research in light of the fact that these large language models require Google-sized data centers to train. So I asked myself, should I just drop out of computer science and become a poet? But of course, the next week, I downloaded 15,000 poems from the internet and trained the system to write much better poetry than I ever could. I've subsequently calmed down, and I do not think that my job is at imminent risk of being replaced by ChatGPT, but I understand that many other people are experiencing the same sense of panic that I had. Artists and writers are worried about their work being devalued. I worry that careers like a paralegal might go the way of a lamplighter. I think that at its core, what we're talking about today goes far beyond copyright. It's about the value of work. This is a truly transformative technology that will shape many aspects of our lives. I hope that it is for the better. I optimistically believe that AI will enable us to be more productive workers and to allow more people to realize their creative visions. In my testimony today, I hope to offer my expertise in the technical aspect of generative AI, and I promise to explain it in a way that doesn't require a PhD in computer science. Answers to any questions that you have about the potential for legislation impacting on innovation in this field, and advocacy for retaining fair use for the purposes of training generative AI systems. In my written testimony, I provided an overview of how these systems work. I'm happy to explain during the hearing today how they do or to have one-on-one -on -one meetings with you or your staff at a later date. To briefly summarize the points that I want to highlight from my written testimony, generative AI is trained on huge amounts of data. Large language models are now trained on roughly one trillion words. Image generators are trained on hundreds of millions of images. Much or even most of that data consists of copyrighted works that have been gathered by automatically crawling the web. It's important to remember that from, this, from these copyrighted works, AI systems learn. This learning process is called pre-training, which is the P in GPT. Pre-training AI systems is different than how we teach our children to learn, but the effect is similar. AI systems learn how to use language. They learn facts about the world. They learn ideas and opinions. They learn visual concepts. They even learn some rudimentary common sense reasoning skills. This pre-training hap happens on copyrighted data, which is then set aside as models are fine-tuned to perform more specific tasks. For instance, a large language model can be fine-tuned on a much smaller purpose-built set of data in order to become an intelligent tutor, or a computer vision system can be fine-tuned in order to detect cancerous growths in mammograms. These systems could not be as easily adapted to these specialized tasks without the general knowledge that they acquire from the copyrighted data that they're pre-trained on. I believe, like Sai, that pre-training these systems squarely falls within fair use, and that internet era court precedents likely established that this is the case, although as the ranking member mentioned, this is currently being litigated in the courts. I do believe that the output of generative AI systems can infringe on copyright, 
And it's worth Congress considering legislation to better shape copyright to govern things like copyrightable characters and possibly to extend copyright to cover things like right of publicity. I look forward to discussing this topic with you today.